Hi, everybody. Um, my name is Marsha, and I am an alcoholic. And um, I'm from Duluth, Georgia. Not, that's okay. It's okay. <laughs> Happens all the time. <laughs> I am an alcoholic. Um, my sobriety date is June 30th, uh, 1981. I am an active member of the Living Life One Day at a Time group in Duluth, Georgia. And, um, my sponsor is Maggie H. And for those... Um, Statements, those are the most important, most truthful statements I can make about myself today, and they remind me of who and what I am, and uh, because of what they've enabled me to do, whose I am. So anything else I tell you today is uh, going to be the best that I can do um, under the circumstances of where I am right now. I am so grateful to be here. I'm always grateful to participate. It's an honor and a privilege to participate in any meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, to be standing up here, to be alive, to not be locked up or covered up. And that's where I, I know without question I would be had it not been for Alcoholics Anonymous. I want to thank the committee for asking me to come here. Uh, it's just, it's amazing. My sponsor, there was a gentleman who is dead now um, from Atlanta named John Flemister who uh, once said that uh, when you pray the 11th step, you think you're being humble. But in, in actuality, you're asking for the whole world because you don't know where God's going to take you or where he's going to lead you. And I've had the privilege of, of being able to go all over this country and to speak why I do not know except to know that I am healed every time I come away from, from one of these um, gatherings because to me this is just God, you're God in this room. But I'm grateful to the committee for asking me, for Allison, Butch, uh, everybody who, Bob, it's good to see Bob. I've got friends here from Atlanta, Kim and Sean, and I, I saw Harold and Jenny. It was a privilege. and. Uh, I'm traveling with my husband. God knows where that man is. I haven't seen him since I got here. And I want to make an announcement right now that not for him not to leave this room before I see him this morning because i got a feeling I'm not going to see him for the rest of the day. But that's a privilege, too, because he and I just celebrated 14 years of marriage in this program. And uh, next week he'll have 20 years sobriety. And uh, we met when we were four and six years uh, sober, so and now we're 18 and 20. We, you might say we're in our teenage years, and we're kind of in a rebellious stage, too. He retired a couple of years ago, and I said, I'm going to have to have him put to sleep if he didn't get something to do. But I am very, very grateful for him. Um, I met him as an alcoholic, and what he did for me in the beginning as a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous, I will always be grateful for. And no matter what happens to us, um, I will always uh, remember the things that he taught me through this program. Uh, let's see, I'm very nervous. I'm always nervous. That's nothing new for me. I'm just one of these who's just about to come apart any minute. And uh, I say that way most of the time, but you can well imagine what I was, what I was like when I was drinking. But uh, I am here to tell you uh, what I was like, what I was like, what happened to me, and what I'm like now. And, and a lot of times lately, I've got some notes up here because I get, I get a little bit lost. I had some surgery recently, and I like to blame everything on anesthesia. My, <laughs> my mother-in-law says every time you go under anesthesia, you're never quite right again. And I've never been quite right anyway. But my memory just uh, can get really um, out there. But um, uh, my my whole life has turned upside down in the last few years. Uh, it's just it's just been an a most amazing situation for me. 
uh, on the one hand. I've been through experiences that I just simply never dreamed that I would ever survive, that I would ever care to, and I wouldn't have been there to even participate in. At the same time, uh, with the, the um, suffering that I have experienced, uh, not just on my own, but also watching other people go through things, uh, the most incredible experience has been to, to see the reverse side and to experience God at an even deeper level. So what I'm going to talk about today, I don't even really know because I don't know uh, where this will carry me. I hope I don't get too emotional. I'm very emotional. Uh, and I may just cry, but I've, I've long since stopped apologizing for that because that's just part of the gift that God's given me to ex express appreciation. But this program has taken me to heights that I never dreamed possible in my life. And if I had ever myself tried to put limits on what I thought my sobriety would be, I would have really sold myself short. I can tell you that today. But I was um, born and raised in Atlanta, Georgia, a middle child. I used to blame that. I at one time thought that was the reason I was an alcoholic, because I read a book that said being a middle child could be very devastating to us emotionally. And... Um, um, I was waiting between two brothers. One, my older brother, uh, was the most popular kid in school. He was the captain of the football team, the president of the senior class and all his classes. He had unbelievable scores of friends and just he, everything he touched just seemed to, to work for him and outgoing and he uh, eventually would become a highly decorated military man and have a, a fine family and he drank occasionally but it's not anything important to him. He could uh, take it or leave it and I've never really seen him drink that much. He's had lots of untold tragedy in his life and yet he seems to have survived it well. My younger brother was essentially the same way. He had um, uh, lots of friends and he was in a very athletic, we come from a very athletic family. My dad was a very athletic man. He was a coach and among all the other things that he managed to accomplish in his life and my younger brother got along well. And uh, But here I am somewhere in the middle and I became an alcoholic, a drug dealer a drug addict, um, a prostitute, a liar, a cheat, and anything else that you can think of. I went to the gutter, and I never could quite figure that out. You know, we were all raised in the same house. What happened here? But um, and, and I was mentally ill. Mental illness is my thing. You know, you can go to Skid Row physically, or you can go to Skid Row in your mind. And I'm just never quite sure. I almost wish sometimes that I had acted out physically some of the things that had gone in my on in my head and gotten caught early on and maybe the, the hell that I went through would have not had to have lasted so long. On the other hand, I wouldn't have what I had today if I hadn't gone through everything that I went through. So I'm quite grateful for that. But uh, my personality was split from the start. I was thinking alcoholically a long time before I took a drink. And as I've always said, at Thanksgiving, nobody ever knew quite how many plates to set because they didn't know how many of me was going to show up. And they never knew, never knew which one was going to show up. So that always kept everybody on edge. I have affected people in my life, all of my life. And um, I, I was thinking of excuses as to why I wasn't an alcoholic. And that's what just about killed me in this program. As Kim read and more about alcoholism is nobody likes to admit, well, I couldn't admit. Um, I simply couldn't admit. And, and I mentioned the excuses that I used to use. 
And um, I, one, I had proof that I wasn't an alcoholic necessarily because um, I have, um, last year I went through some boxes that contained papers from all the doctors that I had been to like 15 psychologists and psychiatrists in my life. And I had, uh, and I listed all of those things because it just fascinated me uh, as to what doctors have been saying about me all my life that I was neurotic, which is very neurotic. I'm the poster child for neurosis today. And uh, obsessive compulsive, I seem to grow more so than I ever have been. Passive aggressive, I had attachment disorder, abandonment disorder, schizoid alienation, that's pretty serious, paranoia, manic depression, um, and even some guy said that I had a responsibility disorder, that I took too much or not enough. So. Um, that, and I, I'll, I, you know, with all those labels, I just say I'm a passionate person. I like to cover it all with passion. I'm just, a, I'm passionate. But, um, you know, just that, uh, that to me, so I never, not one of them said I was an alcoholic. Now, um, I never mentioned that I drank and nobody asked. Uh, they just, I remember once going to a marriage counselor with my husband and we were there because I thought finally somebody's going to see what this man is like. And we're there to supposedly save our marriage. And the first thing out of that guy's mouth was to my husband. He said, now, you go home because we don't need you here. i got to deal with her first. She's a time bomb of ready to explode. And it's like, damn, nobody understands. And that's, that's the story of my life. You just don't understand. And most people don't understand. And it's not important that they do. What's important is that I understand who and why I am. And that came, that took a while. But there was a, a big thing, and I always mention this because it's, it's true. In recent years, I've had an absolute privilege as a result of what you've given me. I've always been so self-absorbed, it's just incredible. I've only, there's been no room in my life for anybody else but me for a long, long time. I drank for 25 years and this is just all about me. Everything in life is about me. But uh, fortunately, you've been able to pry me open somewhat and make me realize that uh, that ain't it at all. And that's not what's going to save my life. It's going to be getting out of me. But one thing I've been uh, privileged to be able to do is to be able to be with my, my parents and, and my mother. I have recently, and I'll tell you about this a little bit later, but I've recently discovered this woman. And there in front of my eyes all these years, the most incredible example of anything you could ever dream of. Just a really incredible, remarkable human being. She's 88 years old, and I've been around her, and I've been around Bill's mom. Bill's mom is uh, 83. And watching these two people operate, one of the things that, another thing no doctor ever mentioned was what maybe why I was so goofy was being Southern. And this is important because when in relation to this program, because I came in here and you talked about being restored to sanity. Well, the truth of the matter is, in the South, being sane is not that does not necessarily impress Southerners <laughs> because being crazy is kind of or a little bit or a lot it's part of the Southern pride, you know. Um, and we don't, and schizophrenia, we've raised to a fine art, kind of that, you know, that back and forth and that split personality. And um, I, and you always, you've got to think of the people, the Southerners, and you watch your movies where Southerners are involved, and you listen to them. You listen to them real carefully. Um, as far as gossiping goes, uh, they don't gossip. They just tell stories, and they tell big stories, and they exaggerate stories. But honesty, you talked about having to get honest. 
And I've mentioned this before because I think it's so precious. Um, I heard my mother-in-law, Bill, recently ask her, he asked her one day about a particular pot in the kitchen. He said, Mom, where did you get that? And she said, oh, so-and-so's this friend of hers. She said, and he just laughingly said, did you steal it? And she said, well, of course not. It just took up with me. Well, (laughs) that's the same thing. My mother's the same way. She sees things like that. Um, And they rationalize and justify, and that's the subject closed. Uh, You talked about me having to write an inventory. Are you kidding? An inventory and tell it to somebody else. Talk about those things to somebody else. That goes so much against the grain of of the way I was raised. It was incredible. You don't tell those things. I had a cousin who was divorced for 15 years before we ever knew about it. And my mother, and he was remarried. And my mother just whispered, we just didn't want to talk about that. You know, it's just, it's things like that that, um, as far as grandiosity and pride, you know, um, Dealing with that, my my mother, uh, she will, you never talked to her and mentioned somebody's name that she doesn't ask who their people are, where they came from, uh, lineage, you know, it's just real important. Appearances and manners are absolutely everything. My mother was recently in the hospital. She fell and broke her hip. And uh, even though she's laying there in pain, she was introducing me to every nurse that came in that room. And it's just that kind of stuff that you grow up with. And, and I've watched it uh, so carefully over the years. And I, I always said that um, I thought the reason Southern women didn't get involved in orgies was because there'd be too many thank you notes to write. <laughs> and this is true. We write thank you notes for everything. Absolutely important. It's important. And um, uh, cursing, cursing is not okay. It's okay to throw a fit, to be petulant, to uh, be vindictive, to be high-strung. My heroes early on in my life are always, you know, all Southern little girls see Gone with the Wind when they're little girls. It's almost a rite of passage. And uh, Scarlett O'Hara and then later on Blanche Dubois who make um, being mentally ill just look real attractive. And you, these women are not um, shallow, and they are not really crazy. They know exactly what they're doing, and they get away with it. And uh, perceptions of reality is not not even bad. It's necessary to change it sometimes. So, you know, this these are things that, uh, as far as the cursing goes, I said that I spoke at a place in Pennsylvania one time that had a rule for the speakers couldn't curse from the podium. And um, I thought, I was indignant because I said, I wouldn't curse from the podium. I might steal your husband or kill somebody, but I'm not going to curse from the podium. It's just my mentality, you know. It's just, it's, But anyway, and of course the Civil War, the past is not, not only not past, it's, um, um, it's not dead, it's not even past. And we still, we get Confederate Memorial Day off, by the way. And <laughs> Robert E. Lee's birthday. And um, uh, it's just stuff like that and it, it's all comical but I can see the I can see more the older I get and Atlanta has grown to be not the charming place that it used to be Atlanta was the only safe haven that I ever had it was my home I was born there raised there I never left there I never tried a geographic somehow I felt security there but Atlanta has become so cosmopolitan that I can't almost can't wait to get out of there one of these days but when um, uh, I was thinking of a one of my most favorite jokes about uh, when we were coming to the Atlanta airport yesterday about Southern women 
And uh, I just love this joke, and y'all forgive me because uh, it's just funny to me about the. I, I find myself bitching about Yankees in Atlanta now. You know, I'm sounding just like my mother, but uh, they've been, they've invaded Atlanta. But I, there were three women sitting on a bench in an airport in New York, and um, two nor two Yankees and a Southern lady and. She looked over at them, and in her cheerful way, you know, she just asked them. We always talk to everybody. But um said, oh, where y'all from? And the one of them looked at her and said, we're from a place where we don't end sentences and prepositions. <laughs> and so she thought for just a minute, and she smiled cheerfully and said, oh, okay, well, where y'all from, bitch? We <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> do have our way. All you need for delusion to be a reality is to be around other people who are similarly deluded. So don't uh, don't sell us short. But anyway, one thing to um, uh, in it seems like, and maybe these things cut across the board and go across any any nationality, any culture, anything. But Southern women love their daddies and they love their granddaddies. And were named after me, but I was named after my grandfather. And indeed, these two men would play the most important, vital roles in my life, and they would affect my thinking, my action, my behavior, and why I'm here today. And this past year, it's been just almost come full cycle. I know I haven't, but it feels that way to a degree. As I said, I was thinking alcoholically a long time before I ever took a drink. And uh, the first impre- the first memory that I have, I think, is probably one of the most vital memories I ever had. And it had to do with my grandfather. And my, gra- my grandfather that I was named after, his name was Marshall, and I was named Marcia. And apparently I was very, very special to this man and very, very loved by this man because I remember it. And I know it today. I feel it today. And for most of my life until I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I never had that feeling. I never even came close to that feeling because it was as close to unconditional love as I could ever imagine what that would mean. I know today also that no human being is capable of unconditional love. I myself am not and nobody in this room is. But God is the only one who can give us the unconditional love that is necessary and that's vital to our lives and he can indeed do it. He has to do it through us and we have to be available and clear enough for him to flow through us. But I remember this man so vividly. I remember everything about him physically. I remember holding his hand. I remember being with him. And the memories must be very deep and very strong because he died when I was three years old. And I remember the funeral. And uh, again, being from the South, um, this uh, situation, and people do it in other places too, but we have the open, open coffin funerals and the songs they sang. And I remember the undertaker picking me up to look at him in the coffin to see that he was really gone. And that must have made a big difference in my life because uh, from that time on, if I look back at my life and when I had to do a four-step and had to, I could see that even the earliest years of my life, I was I was not destined to live this life as this life would demand of me. I did not have the emotional strength or whatever it takes to be able to do it. And the fears of being abandoned, the fears of, of loss, the fear of death, the fear of fear, every kind of fear began back then. And uh, it was only accentuated because uh, I remember that one of the earliest prayers I ever learned was, now I'd lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. 
and uh, I was so afraid, I was afraid to sleep. Years later, the way I would handle that was I would become addicted to amphetamines, which ran hand in hand with the alcoholism, so I didn't have to sleep. And I would go, go for just one time I went for almost a year, it seemed, um, without sleeping because I was scared to death and I didn't know what a soul was. Um, my dad's a Southern Baptist minister. And I used to blame that. I used to blame the fact that I was a Southern Baptist minister for being an alcoholic. Or, I, you know, I just kept using it, just kept using that. That was my biggest resentment and my biggest uh, excuse. But there was never a drop of alcohol dr uh, served in our home. My parents didn't drink. There was no, no alcohol in the home. I'm not from an alcoholic family uh, that I could ever see. Now, I know I have uncles and, and relatives that drank and got in bad trouble, but they were good old boys who were just curious. That's what people used to call them. And there's a lot of insanity that ran in my family, but it was never labeled alcoholism. That word was foreign to me. We didn't uh, curse. We didn't smoke. We didn't drink. We went to church every Sunday and Wednesday night, and that's the way my life was. Uh, my parents encouraged education. Both parents were... My dad was a, a biblical scholar, and he had... Um, master's degrees and PACs, and my mother is highly intelligent. And these people encouraged education and that we do uh, try to make something of ourselves and that we go to school, we be part of the community, and that we take music lessons and that we do all of the things that give you an opportunity to have a decent life. They didn't have much financially, but they used every bit of it to uh, enable us to do these things. Of course, I never saw that. All I saw... You know, people talk about how badly some people who do come from horribly abusive homes and that, that this does affect us. This affects our thinking. It, it affects our behavior later on in life. And I was all resentful because I came from a good home, for heaven's sake. So an alcoholic, you know, how can you figure it? But um, early on, I had all of these feelings and emotions, and my daddy was my most Oh, my God, I love that man so much, and I would try every way I could possibly do to please him and to make him happy and to make him say I love you and to let him know and have him put his arms around me and tell me how important I was. That was necessary for me for some reason early on. But uh, I also wanted to be a part of, and I, I wore glasses when I was seven years old, and back then in the 50s, they had this, I think it's Dorothy Parker who said, men don't make passes at girls who wear glasses. And that's true. That, that was then. They do now. Hmm. But I didn't. Anyway, uh, back then that was not, um, it was not the, you know, glasses were considered just something ugly. So I took that to heart, and I took to heart that I couldn't be like the other kids. Little things like the other girls, the cheerleaders, I always hated cheerleaders. You know, I was destined for movies, because I, these movies about the girl who wants to get even because she was uh, the cheerleaders made her feel bad, so she goes and kills all the cheerleaders. And I wanted to at some point in my life, but they could turn cartwheels and I couldn't. I, but I'd want to kill myself. I learned later to want to kill somebody else instead of myself. But anyway, that's just a childhood. And I mention all that stuff because I took my first drink of alcohol when I was nine years old. So it, it was just, thank God for that drink of alcohol. Alcohol and Alcoholics Anonymous have been the two forces in my life which have been the most important forces in my life. Everything else in between has been in response to I took a drink of alcohol because a friend of mine's mother happened to have a tea glass of alcohol, uh, of uh, bourbon, and said, did I want some? And I took it just to, yes, because I wanted to be a part of, wanted to fit in, and I took the drink. And from that time on, for the next 25 years, until it began to turn on me, I would chase the feeling that 
that drink gave me, that very first drink. I remember the feeling. I've always been so anxious and so full of frustration, and I think frustration could probably be the word that could define me. I've always felt like I had one foot nailed to the floor. I could never quite succeed in anything I ever did. But what alcohol did for me, it may, what it did to me was what it does to every other human being. It makes you sick. But um, I was willing to endure that. I was willing to endure the indignities. I was eventually willing to endure the total insanity that it brought about because I began to believe the lie that alcohol would solve my problems and would not only solve my problems but would give me a whole new way of living. And it did. It did. It gave me a whole new personality and I was able to feel okay uh, and eventually not only okay you see I'd had these feelings of inferiority eventually they would become feelings of superiority uh, and I would grow to um, and I would soon very early in my life develop a system of defense against the world against you against God and I could defy every one of you and I would do anything I wanted to because I would have that friend and alcohol was the best friend I ever had and when you asked me told me that I had to not drink anymore you see the first step of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous tells me that I can't drink and I can't not drink well after all the years of drinking uh, I did not have the power within me to generate the ability to not drink and that's where you came in but I was able to drink successfully for a long time and to control the world outside of me because I knew that if I could just do that, then I would be all right. And I looked outside of me all those years for the comfort and for what I needed to be whatever it was that I wanted to be. And I had some dreams and hopes. I used to want to be a singer. I used to be a, want to be an actress and a writer. And during those years, Connie Francis was a big singer in the 50s, and she had a song, Who's Sorry Now? And that became my theme song. Somebody's going to pay for this, but Who's Sorry Now? Elvis Presley, the last time I was in Las Vegas was in the early 70s, and I sat just right here, and he was just right there, and I just about died. He was my first love, and I've never gotten over Elvis Presley to this day. I just I miss him terribly, but um, just one of these emotional, sentimental people, but you know, eventually all of that would be killed too, because alcohol numbs the pain, but it also numbs the feelings that we're supposed to have, and the things that make us human and make us good and help us to grow. Um, when I, in high school, I added to the uh, alcohol. When, you, when I started drinking alcohol, I had to start lying, of course, to get alcohol, to sneak around and to do it. And I began to develop um, these character defects that I would have to come to deal with, come to terms with later. And it would be very difficult because they were so ingrained in me. But the lying, the cheating, and um, eventually I added stealing and uh, the shoplifting, and I was part of a theft ring in high school. And I got away with all these things, and alcohol would fuel this false notion that I that and the power it gave me power, some sense of power and strength and courage, courage to do the things that I needed to do, all to fit in, all to be a part of, and that feeling of superiority. By the time I was, I, I skipped a grade in high school, and I just was going to have to go to college. That was demanded of us by our parents, and uh, I was getting ready to go to college, and I made 
a declaration because I had reached the point that I didn't need you people. I didn't need those silly, stupid cheerleaders. And you people were so stupid anyway. I got away with things and you didn't catch on to it. So that meant I was smarter than you were. And uh, I sure didn't need that family and I didn't need those parents. I didn't know then that I was going to set out to punish my father for everything he was worth, for every moment that he never gave me, for everything that he ever denied me emotionally. And I would set out to punish him, and I would do a good job of it. But in the mean, and with that, I would punish myself and, and everybody that I touched. The big book talks about if, if a person has cancer, we just feel sorry for him, and, and we wouldn't criticize him. But um, with the disease of alcoholism comes the annihilation of everything that we hold dear and the destruction of people and everything that we've ever cherished and that could, could have meant anything to us. But I made a declaration when I was 16 years old that would change my life forever, and that was that as I went out the door to go to Auburn, which is in Alabama, that I would never again darken the door of a church that uh, the God that I had been raised with, that I had tried, I'd tried uh, to, to, to do what I was supposed to do. And I'd been to Sunday school, but that hadn't taken. And there obviously was no God. If he was there, though, if indeed he was there, then uh, he'd given me brains to think and to use. So he meant for me to run my own life. And that's what I did for the next 20, uh, however many years, until I came into this program through the just the gates of hell. And that's where my will took me, and that's where my ego uh, began to grow and to flourish. And, you know, the ego is the part of the bond um, that, that focuses on the personality and the body and thus separates us from the spiritual. And that's when it began to really happen for me. And I believe today that uh, for every drink that I would put into my body, and if you've been in and out of this program, every time you take a drink of alcohol, that that instantly separates you from the spiritual, uh, from God. And um, But anyway, I made that declaration, and, and today I know that I can't separate myself from God because God's here, he's inside of me, but I can bury him so alive that he cannot see the light of day and that he's not going to take away my will. Um, we talk about willpower and giving our will over to the care of God. I don't think that we give necessarily, I don't think he's going to take my will because he's given it to me as a vehicle in order to make choices. And willpower is simply the strength of the choices that I'm able to make. So I don't know that he's going to take my will, but I do know that I need to turn my will around and align it with his and to do uh, what he's wanting me to do. But in order to do that, i got to get out of the way. There's so many paradoxes in this program. I went to Auburn and... Um, uh, based armed with that idea and that uh, declaration of freedom. And um, I've talked about it before, but that was a horrible, horrible time. I tried to fit in there and didn't, and I really didn't care at that stage. I would find myself later on in the chapter of the agnostic, and that was the one chapter that I did not read for years in this program. But uh, I got in trouble with the Auburn football team, and I don't even go into that anymore, but that's... Um, the prostitution by then had taken hold, and I went to the gutter. I absolutely went to the gutter as a human being and unrecognizable as the daughter of the people from whence I came and from the community and from the values. And um, I came home and because my daddy insisted that I have a college education. And so I did get a college degree. I got four degrees in psychology and sociology, history, and political science. Not because I'm so smart, but because I thought Daddy would be pleased with one of those. And the day I graduated, he said, well, why don't you get a degree in history, I mean, in business? 
the one thing I didn't do. I went. I did open a business. Of course, everything in my life has been either for to in response to, for or against whatever whatever my dad wanted. And I opened a business and I ran a successful business for a few years, but my alcoholism destroyed that too. Uh, I had a child. I married the right man. I say the right man because my daddy liked him and he was a good man. He's a very loving man. He's highly intelligent, very handsome, and very capable of taking care of me. And by that time, by my early 20s, um, my alcoholism was full-blown. And uh, the way I drank was simply uh, I loved bourbon. I had a favorite bourbon, George Dickel. I don't know if anybody's ever been familiar with that. And I loved beer. And uh, I had set up my life to where I could, um, and at that time it was a reward for me. I would uh, take amphetamines during the week to function and to do things and to be superhuman, superwoman. And this notion of grandiosity and having perfectionism was all of my defects were just accelerated. And to drink, I would drink to relax eventually and to get rid of the anxiety caused, you know, by the, all of this cycle, this cycle of insanity that's building. And eventually I would not have a choice in the matter and alcohol would be uh, the only thing that uh, it wouldn't work anymore. Actually, it didn't. Um, it stopped working uh, because I was more anxious and more frustrated and sicker and sicker and my behavior was worse. And uh, life was just becoming untenable. I could not hold on much longer. And I was going insane. And um, my marriage, though I married the right man, and I had the right child. I felt nothing with either one of them. My ability to love, I believe our re the ability to reason uh, is eroded the minute I take a drink. And um, uh, and the ability to love. If I had any at all, it was dead. So I went through my life pretty much that way. And I came to the, the jumping off place the first time because of the way life had turned out uh, physically, emotionally, financially. I was so beaten. Uh, in all the areas, and of course spiritually, in 1981, and I was sent to a treatment center because I was told I was an alcoholic. And for a second, that sounded good because it was a name for what was going on, but it wasn't. It didn't last very long because of all the reasons I told you. I couldn't be an alcoholic, but I had just used up everything and everybody. And I, it's like we come to a place where how did this happen? Well, I went into treatment center, and um, for the first two years in this program, nothing changed. I lived like a drunk. I acted like a drunk. Thought like a drunk. I just didn't take a drink. And and now I know today that uh, the grace of God. He's really loved me. He has loved me so that I didn't drink, and I don't understand why except to know that I needed to be beaten down and beaten and bludgeoned to the bottom. And I was at two years of sobriety. I had come to meetings, and uh, I came here because you seemed to, to um, want me to be here. You seemed to know I was an alcoholic, and you didn't throw me out. And uh, though you didn't leave me, and I could eventually came to trust you like no other. I came to find unconditional love here because it's given to us, uh, God's here, and uh, he loves me through you, and the same goes for, for we can, we do it to, to each other. But I was, I came into this program and immediately got involved with a man, a married man, because after all, when I have to give up drugs and alcohol, um, the next thing, next step is going to be that man. And uh, I did do some things. I never opened the books. I never read the literature. I didn't know the steps in order. I had no clue. But it just kept me. But, you know, alcoholism's progressive whether we drink it or not. And I didn't know it at the time. But, indeed, I did progress to be so sick emotionally. And I came to that jumping off place. I came to that insanity. 
Uh, I can't live with alcohol and I can't live without it. I can't drink and I can't not drink. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? And I reached another momentous decision in my life. But I had come to a convention just like this. I love these conventions. I really do. And when I'm asked to do anything, I learn in Alcoholics and I was never to say no. because. And I, I did it in the beginning not understanding why. I've done a lot of things in this program that I didn't understand why. But when I got to the place where I knew I didn't have to understand that I'd just do it, I've known, I've learned the benefits of it. And uh, I happened to have been at a convention one night just like something like this. And I didn't want to be there, but my sponsor had said to be there. And because uh, I, w I was still people-pleasing, but, you know, sponsor-pleasing is not people-pleasing. Sponsors, sponsors, they got some God in them. But I did what she said. And I don't, at that point, I didn't care if she liked me or not, but I just didn't want to have to hear it. I didn't want to incur her wrath. So if you got a sponsor who you just can't stand, that's okay. It doesn't matter. If she's working the program, this program and working the steps and telling you things to do, just get over having her tell you what to do and saying nobody's going to tell me what to do because God's speaking to you through her. But uh, I showed up there and I heard a speaker and it happened to be Clancy and I heard the message. And I believe that each and every one of us, we tell each other. God's got, God has told everybody in this room something that I need to know today that's going to help me heal me and help me stay alive and become happily and usefully whole. I know that today, but I hadn't been able to hear. I had been so blind and so sick, and the, and the disease of alcoholism was so deep in me that I had denied, and, and I couldn't see it. And, and my reality was outside of me. Uh, it had to be in people, places, and things. And if I just had money, if I just had a band, if I just had something, but I never understood where it was going to come from and how you were going to play the part in there. But I heard the message with him about the disease of perceptions, and I had to come to understand that it starts with those faulted, faulty, sick perceptions that we have and that alcohol does indeed alter the perceptions, but mine had become so twisted, but that I've been acting and I've been defiant against just that, faulty perceptions. I have been defiant and rebellious and, and self-destructive against lies, things that I had believe which weren't at all true at all true and to this day I am still discovering how twisted my perceptions are but uh, from perceptions because of course me thoughts are charged with emotions and once those the, the, the emotions mine have always been so strong they gave power to those thoughts and out of those thoughts grew those attitudes I don't need you I don't have to, I can do this by myself and out of those attitudes come no behavior that's just the way it goes and I had to learn that and today I have to recognize that when I have to look at my behavior and see what it is that I'm doing but anyway, the program began to take hold in my heart, and I don't know why. I guess when we have ears to hear and eyes to see, we do, and that was the time for me up that place. And, and I know that the ego has to be deflated at depth. The ego, which is the Marsha that I created, so that the Marsha that God created uh, can begin to somehow come forth. And uh, I was deflated at that point in time, humbled, if you will. I was beaten and bludgeoned, whatever you want to uh, say. But God was able to somehow get in there and begin to speak to me. And then the te when the, te the student is ready, the teachers do appear. And they just, they'd always been around me, but I hadn't been able to see. And you begin to come, and things begin to come alive. I began to come alive, and the transformation did begin to 
take place for me. And the next few years were the most incredible years of my life, and I'll be forever grateful beyond words, beyond measure, to the very people, the very um, jobs that you gave me to do. And, and for those, if there's anybody who's new here, if there's anybody who's struggling, or if you're living your life on this continual disturbance and frustration and nothing's ever going right and you just can't get happy, Please, just just do some simple things that uh, we all hear but we resist. And it's those very things that are going to change. It changed my life, and I never knew what value it would be to me until this past year. This past year has been the most incredible year of my life. Up until where I stand in front of you today, a few days ago, my life has really been on the line. And in sobriety... And this is where, you know, people, I love the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I think it's the most, next to the Bible, I think the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, the finest piece of literature and truth I have ever read in my life. But I also love the 12 and 12, and I'm, I'm amazed at a lot of old-timers who don't read it or kind of maybe put it down. And I don't want to incur their wrath, but I love that 12 and 12 because Bill Wilson wrote that when he was 13 years sober and been living 13 years without a drink. And it talks about what it's like to live. It talks about emotional sobriety and how we have to have that too and how he hadn't gotten it. In a, and a lot of the years that he was sober, he said, the one thing I've been missing is emotional sobriety. And I had to have that too as well as the physical sobriety. And I couldn't just keep going. And I am so grateful for everything that anybody told me to do. I got a sponsor who didn't, I wouldn't argue with and I haven't to this day. And she was the most powerful woman and she still is. I respect her and I have tremendous respect for her. And I learned to come to meetings and to do things and to take care of other people and to forget myself and to be involved in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and to read the literature and to do everything that you hear said but we just don't do it and that I was never to say no to any AA request and that I was to do what I said I was going to do when I said I was going to do it and to be where I said I would be. All of the things, and these are the ways that I would be able to deal with the character defects and that I would be able to grow and to uh, it would not only expel the obsession to drink but enable me to be happily and usefully whole. And I had no idea what the con that concept was even like. Like, all I wanted to do when I first came in here, I didn't come in here to stop drinking. It was just to get the world off my back. But I was beaten down and beaten into a place of submission. And I don't want to ever have to go back there, but I don't want to ever forget that. I want to talk to you all this morning the best I can about what has happened to me because I think the immense step in this program, the steps eight and nine will indeed free your soul. Uh, they have mine. And um, I found out who and what I am and what I'm about this past year. I went to a new plane of um, uh, God, a new level. I experienced God in a, new, a way that I never dreamed possible. And it came through making amends. When I was told that I had to make amends and do the, do the amends steps, I made amends the best I possibly could to all of the people that I could in the ways that I had to financially and in so many ways. It was just an incredible thing because I'd alienated everybody. I lost my marriage. I lost my child. I lost my job. I lost my business. I lost everything financially. Uh, so I was beaten to that place too. And that was like 15 years ago out of the 18. I had nothing. I had started my life over again then from ground zero without a penny to my name, without anything. Uh, without a family, without anybody. And I had so punished my family, my parents especially, um, that um, I had wrecked that family too. 
and friends. And I had, it was just an incredible uh, journey for me to, to the bottom and to the, the, to the gutter. And the one resentment that I had carried so strongly was against my father. I had loved this man. I had tried everything I ever did, and I could see that everything I ever did had been in response to him. And I had never heard I love you. I had never felt that he, I was loved. I could never please him. And it seems it was continual frustration. And I hated him. I hated this man. And I had managed to make his life pretty miserable too, but he seemed to be able to go on. But anyway, um, I was told that I was going to have to make that amend. And that was the one amend that I refused to do. And I said, there's no way possible because I couldn't possibly see how that man had, how I could have hurt him as much as he had hurt me. He had virtually destroyed my life in the ways that, um, just so many ways that I hadn't believed and I knew to be true. Uh, but anyway, through the years, I knew I had to do it. I had to do it. And I try, I'm going to try to be brief with this because I don't even know. I don't know what I've experienced. And I don't know that I'll know the full um, impact of it for a long, long time. But we talk about, the book talks about letting go of old ideas. And the quicker we can let go of as many old ideas as we can, then God's going to be able to do his work because we're going to clear the clutter out of his way so that he can fully come up inside of us and we can experience being a channel of his peace and the channel between us can flow when we work the steps of the program. And I learned to work the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, by the way, because they are ego deflating in depth. Each and every one of them, because they are ego deflating, that voice, the Marsha voice, the ego can be stilled and be quiet and God's voice, I can hear his voice with every step that I work and I believe in the steps and I believe in step studies and big book studies. But I worked the steps the best I could and always to this day, I'm a, um, my home group is a step study and a big book study and um, I have a ladies meetings a step study and I need these things more today than ever. But anyway, this amend kept sticking with me and it kept being so difficult and so hard. And um, finally, though, I was told the basic things to do. And I've never quite understood what this over here has got to do with my life. Uh, and somebody's always talk, says, you know, uh, you know, change the steps to read the way I want them to read so they'll fit into what I'm needing here. But that's not true. But I was told to begin to do things, to begin to go see these people that I had ignored in the same city, just to see them. I'd go for months and not see them and not call, but just to try to do that and to be of service any way I could, whether I wanted to or not. And through the years, I began to do these things and not feel anything about it necessarily, but somehow I was just doing what you told me to do. And that would become the most, this past year has been the most critical and the most important journey I've ever taken. Because um, my dad became ill a few years ago with Parkinson's. And Parkinson's has, I don't know, I think there's 50-something varieties. But this disease would take him to the depths of hell as far as physically. I would come to see the man to where he couldn't blink his eyes, where he couldn't breathe. He couldn't do anything on his own, move a finger or do anything. And to see this powerful, powerful force in my life to be completely destroyed this way. But he became ill. And um, a few years ago, um, my nephew had died of uh, AIDS. He was 26 years old. He was the first grandson. He was important to me beyond words. He was one of the few people that I could connect with and had loved, and he died. And a couple of years later on Christmas Eve, his mother died of a heart attack. And these were two of the most powerful people in my life. They had meant so much to me. They were two of the few who I had still had any relationship left with, and they died. 
and here comes that fear that death and that dying and all the abandonment and don't leave me and you see I had long ago established ways to deal with that if you don't love me I don't love you if you're going to leave me that's fine just go on because I don't need you and I could build I could feel that but you enable me to start feeling those things again and to, to realize that those, those ideas weren't going to work anymore but uh, it was very hard for me and um, uh, this was in 1996 that my sister-in-law died. Well, my dad by this time had become um, physically to where he could barely walk. And one night, and I went, I had to be the one to tell them that my sister-in-law had died. And they had loved her as much as they ever loved any of us. She was so good to them. She loved them unconditionally, in, in a way that I mean unconditionally. And she appreciated them for who they were. But she, I had to tell them about his death. And uh, I never dreamed that I could do that. And that was very hard. But something very powerful happened as a result of that. And my dad became very ill that night. And I, and I brought him back to Atlanta. To, and they had moved away. But to sleep, he was sleeping down the hall. And I heard him fall. And here's a six-foot-two man on the floor. And he's very sick. And I picked him up with my arms. Little me picked him up. And I carried him into the bathroom. And we were there and he said, I'm so sorry you have to see me like this. And I said, Daddy, this is an honor and a privilege to be able to help you. And we're going to see this thing through. And I made a commitment that night. And I didn't know what I was doing. But it was just because of what you had taught me to do that I was able to even say that. And so for the last few years, and especially the last year, I just went through a, an experience that I can't even begin to tell you what it was like because I became the primary caretaker. I kept that job. I worked for the Georgia State Senate, and I tried to keep my job, and I did. I was able to do that, to keep my commitments in Alcoholics Anonymous and to take care of my father. He was 83 years old and mother, 88, and I drove back and forth. I drove hundreds of miles. I slept on the floor of, there were eight hospitals that we were in and in and out of hospitals. I was able to do things physically that I could not possibly do on my own. But most importantly, I was able to pray and ask God for the strength, and he gave it to me on a regular basis because I had come to trust God's strength and his courage because I've come to know that on my own, I have none. On my own, I have nothing. On my own, I am nothing. But I know that he's there, and I found him inside of me as a result of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's the only thing I have going for me today. And um, we were able to go through this nightmare, and it was indeed a nightmare. My brothers chose not to participate, and I had a lot of anger and resentment, but I had to know that they were draining me from taking from me the strength I needed with those resentments to take care of Daddy. And we went this way. In the meantime, the people of Alcoholics Anonymous were the most incredible, it was the most incredible experience I've ever seen of giving and caring without asking anything in return and begging me to be able to help me and to help my parents. And you people are the most incredible group of people I have ever known. Alcoholics Anonymous is the most expressive face of God that I have ever seen in every gathering of people. And by January of this year, I have never been so physically, mentally, spiritually, and emotionally worn down completely. At the same time, I have never been so filled up. And it's just the difference, the difference with you. You made the difference for me. Daddy died on January the 16th, and I had prayed for months because he, of the physical 
uh, what he was going through physically, that he not have to suffer the last final indignities of the not being able to blink his eyes or that he would suffocate. And indeed, God was merciful because he, um, one night um, after he had spent the time he needed uh, talking and doing the things that he needed, and I think God takes each and every one of us when he wants us, and I know that, but Daddy was able one night to just turn over and go to sleep, and I was so grateful to God for that. But the most important thing for me was that when I stood at his grave, I had no amends and no regrets, not a single one. And I had been preparing myself for all of those years in this program and through you to be of maximum service to those people. And I made that vow and commitment a long time ago that if God would help me, and because of my thanks to him for what he had given me, which was one more opportunity, that I would get to that place and that I would need the strength and the courage that only he could give me, but I would be able to do that with his help. And I made that commitment that I would see it through no matter what. And I was able to do it. During this time last year, some terrible things happened because I had always wanted the best friend. I'd always wanted to be special with one person. And that's where that daddy thing came in. I know today I'm special to God, and each and every one of you are too. And I don't have that need anymore. But I had had that, and I had had a best friend in this program. Well, she took off and left last year because she decided this was too much for her. She told somebody that she thought she had had the best years of Marsha, which was in my early years when nothing much was happening. Of course, I could grow spiritually, and I could grow, and things were good in every way. But she took off, and for a moment I had that feeling one more time that you don't get too close and don't trust anybody, and that won't happen. But it passed because I had all of you, and I had so many sweet, sweet babies. I wish I could name every single one of the women that I sponsored because they last year sponsored me. This young lady up here calls me sponsor, but I could not have lived without her last year. She is the voice of calm and the voice of reason and the voice of Alcoholics Anonymous when I need it, and I have needed it so desperately because I did exactly what I had to do last year, but it took its toll on me. And um, I, we, I was in a head-on car collision last August. I was diagnosed with a kidney tumor last year. And um, just recently I was talking today about um, I had some cancer surgery for what they thought was a cancer, and we have one more biopsy out there that we're waiting on the results, and I'm not going to call the doctor today because I don't need to do that, but I could call him today to find out, but so what? I'm going to do whatever it is I have to do. One of the things he told me not to do uh, for several months, and I never breathed a word of it at home because I was afraid somebody would hold me to it, but he said, you cannot do any traveling for six months to a year. <laughs> he said, don't go anywhere, especially those long AA trips. And um, so um, I'm doing what the doctor says some ways. I'm trying to get my rest here and there. He said, don't lift anything that's over five pounds, like five-pound bag of sugar in my suitcase yesterday, you know, weighed 100 pounds. But I'm here today because I believe that everybody that crosses my path and who crosses uh, and whose path I cross, I think we're in this deal. I think God's here, and this is the way that we heal and we that we are healed. I believe that. I know that. I know it without question. But this whole year for me took its toll. And um, thank you, God, thank you, Alcoholics Anonymous, for having given me the training in the early years, for having opened my mind, prying my mind open. I, I forgot to mention, uh, back in the 60s, I was a war protester, and I, I dealt drugs and uh, pot, and, and I protested the Vietnam War, and I carried signs and everything. And I've always said that my mind got so open, you know, your mind can get so open that your brains fall out. And... <laughs> That, 
that happened that you you opened my mind in the way that God wants my mind to be open and kept it open and you've kept it open and I haven't necessarily done very well and I've learned though that I not don't have to do very well as long as I stay sober and do the best I can that however I'm feeling today which is probably in my 18 years of sobriety um, I'm at the most teachable place I've ever been. I'm at the most helpless place. And that's where God usually wants me. That's good for me. It's not necessarily good for you because you want to hear somebody up here who's probably strong and got his harassed together. But I'm right where I'm supposed to be. And I'm, I'm not helpless. So I know everything's going to be okay because I'm going to be okay. And you've given me that hope. Without it, I'm, there's no need to keep going. But uh, it took its toll, everything took its toll on me, and I want to share with you one last thing, because um, I had the surgery recently, and um, uh, that was very frightening, and there's some things very frightening to me that would frighten anybody about physically. Uh, I can't see why, how it could have been different, though, because physically I pushed myself beyond limits last year. But um, uh, emotionally and mentally, uh, I hurt a lot of people this past year, and in making the amends to my parents and to my dad, uh, I created some problems because sometimes situations that cause these things that we have to take actions and we, we worry later, but there were people who just refused to participate, and I had to do some things that, I, that uh, the rest of the family didn't necessarily agree with. But I found myself about a month ago where it says on page 52 in the big book, uh, right back where I was when I was two years sober, as far as emotionally and spiritually. And um, I was having trouble with everybody, and I was having trouble living my life in, in every way it, it, with my job. I had They had been so good to me at work, but I didn't want to be at work anymore, and the depression was so strong, and the fear and the anxiety and resentments had grown, and I just have to get rid of those things. But I did the thing that I was taught to do a long, long time ago, and I'm telling you what, when we get, when, just when we follow a few instructions, there are instructions and they're requirements. But if we just do these things, then we've got a chance. But I wrote an inventory, and I went right back through these steps, and I took that inventory to Maggie's bedside. She's been very ill for a long time. But I got on my knees with her, and I laid up on that bed with her, and I talked for hours and hours and hours. And I went through every defect of character. You see, this last year brought out every principle that you've ever taught me, but it brought out every character defect also. And I've had to I've had to go right back to the beginning. And that's where I am today. I know that I can't drink and I can't not drink. And I know that in order to be restored to sanity, I'm going to have to have a power greater than me. And I used to think it's just have power. But it's not have power. It's greater than me. And it's got to be somebody other than me. And that my will and my life is my thinking and my actions and it's gonna have to, I'm gonna have to let you have it. And I'm so grateful because you got it. It's yours. I made that, that exchange a long time ago and I'm not taking it back no matter what. You're gonna have so many great speakers this weekend and I, I just can't wait to hear them. Because to hear what God's got on His mind for me. And He's gonna, I'm gonna go away from here healed. The last uh, place I spoke was in Huntsville, Alabama. And if you think this talk has been disjointed, that one was so incredible because I fell apart right in the middle of it. It was, it was two weeks, it was two weeks after Daddy died and I was just at that verge of collapse emotionally and, and physically.
And right in the middle of that talk, I just lost it. And that's not happened to me, that pride and that ego of being able to go on the circuit. And if nothing else, I may not tell you anything meaningful, but most of the time I can amuse you and charm you. But that day I couldn't amuse, I couldn't charm, and I couldn't say anything meaningful except that I'm hurting. And I'm hurting bad. But, you know, Bob was there, and that blessed Clint H., I wish I could say his last name. I love that man because he he was there. There's no there's no coincidences in this program. Butch and this committee didn't know a year ago how badly I would need this meeting in this conference. How could they know? The people who asked me to Huntsville didn't know that I would need Clint and Bob so much that day because Clint happened to be on the program the two years before when I had spoken a month after my sister-in-law had died on Christmas Eve. And I know these things aren't coincidences and that everybody in here has got something I need. And I need you today. I love you more than I've ever loved you and I need you more than I've ever needed you. And for those of you who are mucking around and playing with this program, I wish you luck. And for those of you who say you don't know about a God and can't get a God, just look at the person right next to you. Just listen. Just listen in a meeting. And just try to keep an open mind about it. I want to say thank you for letting me be here today. I won't—I didn't say anything that I wanted to say. That maybe um, one day I'm going to be able to give that talk. Um, I give it to myself in the car all the time. And I've even thought of having a, a tape recorder going all the time. But I've got this thing that I say to myself, somebody's boring me and I think it's me. So I'm going to sit down and I'm going to be quiet. But I want to tell you how much I thank you. My parents, thank you. My daddy, thank you. Good morning. When we were little, one of the opportunities that daddy gave us, you see, as I grew in this program to know this man, I was able to write his obituary back two months before he died. And it's an incredible piece of work when you read that piece of paper to see what it was that I was so blinded to and what I refused to see. He was one of the finest men, most integrity-filled people I've ever known. And what an opportunity that I had missed and cut myself off from. But one of the things he did for us when we were children that I had never seen or appreciated was that he brought us, he took us on trips. He made sure that we traveled. And uh, he worked several jobs in order to see that we had everything we needed. And I never appreciated that. And one of the things he did was take us out west. He loved the west. He had stacks and stacks and stacks of Arizona Highway magazines that we had to throw away or get rid of or do something with when he died. And I didn't want to get rid of them because they were so much a part of him. But he took us to the Grand Canyon when we were little. And he used to talk about the Colorado River. And I looked out this morning, I saw that river, and I called my mom. I said, I'm so close to the Grand Canyon, I'm so close to the Colorado River. I'm so close to those mountains that Daddy loved so much. I wish he were here. And of course, she reminded me, he is here. He's here. And I'm so grateful to you, and I thank you so much.